Good morning. I know this time of year often there are people arriving uh, for the first time in Dubai, so let me introduce myself. Uh, my name is Glenn Jones. I serve as one of the pastors here at Redeemer and have done since we planted the church in 2010. Uh, I'm married to a South African lady named Donita Jones, and uh, she and I have been blessed by the Lord with four children, uh, the oldest of which is 11. The youngest is six. His name is Liam. And last year he said to me, Daddy, I don't want to grow up. I don't want to be a man. I want to, I want to turn six and stay six. <laughs> now, he's got a great sense of humor. But on this occasion, he was serious. He was almost in tears. Oh, my boy, I love you, but you can't stay six. You keep growing whether you like it or not. You don't get to choose whether you grow up. But you know, as I thought about it, I realized that as Christians, we do the same thing. We, we sometimes try and stay six in our Christian maturity. You know, there's all the excitement of birth when we first become Christians. And we start coming to church and we listen to the sermons and we make new friends and but then not much changes in our lives. It's like somewhere along the way, we decided to stay six. Now, we all know that Liam won't stay six. In fact, come October 15th this year, he will unavoidably and irreversibly turn seven. <laughs> He'll also get taller. But, you know, getting bigger physically doesn't guarantee that he will get mature. Maturity will only come as my wife and I disciple him, teaching him to make wise decisions, helping him to understand the ways of the world, and most importantly, shepherding his heart so that he sees that he needs Jesus just like his parents do. Well, this morning we're going to spend some time in Ephesians chapter 4. Now, Paul wrote this letter to the church in Ephesus with the overarching goal of helping them to understand the truth of the gospel and then how they are to live that up, how they are to grow up into it as a church. So chapters 1 to 3 of Ephesians are full of glorious truths about God's grace to us in Christ. And then chapters 4 to 6 explain the implications of that for our lives as a church. Now the expectation is that once you become a Christian you will continue to increase in maturity. It will be an ongoing process of change in your life. But here's the big question for us this morning. How do I grow spiritually? Or, more to the point, how do we grow spiritually? There's actually a number of ways that Scripture answers that question. So you might be thinking immediately, 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that all scripture is useful for shaping us to maturity. Or James 1, which tells us that various trials tests our faith and produces in us steadfastness. Or Colossians 1, teaches us that the faithful teaching about Christ leads to maturity in Christ. And Philippians 1 verse 6 just affirms the role of prayer and the promise that we have 
that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. He's faithful. I mean, all of these are true, but how do they fit together? How does the the preaching at church and your individual time in God's word and your involvement in a community group and your prayer life and various kinds of trials and things that are going on in your life, how do they all fit together in such a way that produces in us corporate spiritual growth? That's what Paul is addressing here in Ephesians 4. He's painting a picture for us that takes the the stick man of our individualistic approach to spiritual maturity and turns it into a strong, healthy, mature man capable of withstanding anything. So the principle that I think Paul lays out for our spiritual growth is this. The degree to which you love those in your church is the degree to which the church will grow spiritually. The degree to which you love those at Redeemer Church of Dubai is the degree to which we will grow spiritually together. I mean, just take a look around at the people on either side of you. You can look. You may or may not like this, but God's plan for your spiritual growth involves those people. Your spiritual growth and my spiritual growth are mutually dependent on one another. Well, with that in mind, let's take a look at this picture in Ephesians 4 and begin to see how the Lord's plan is to unfold. Now, to help organize our thoughts, I've broken down the passage into into three sections or three points. The saints the faith, and the truth. So the saints, verse 11 to 12, the faith, verse 13 and 14, and the truth, verse 15 and 16. So we begin with verse 11. But to understand exactly what Paul is saying here, we first need to get a bit of context. So if you have your Bibles with you, back up a few verses to verse 8. This is verse 8. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this is a quote from Psalm 68, verse 18. And Paul says it's about the risen Jesus, the one who has just conquered death and destroyed the power of sin. And Jesus ascended into heaven, and the disciples were left staring up at the sky. Now that's okay because Jesus said... In John 16, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, that's the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So the gifts referred to here in verse 8 are gifts that come to his people through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that Jesus sent. So now we come down to verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Jesus didn't leave us to fend for ourselves. He knew that we needed the Holy Spirit and he knew that we would need each other. He gave us to each other to serve one another in specific roles 
for a specific purpose. He gave some the gift of apostleship, and others were given the gift of prophecy. Others were particularly good at evangelism, and others found great joy as they exercised their gift of shepherding and teaching. These gifts, given through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, were given for the specific purpose of caring for Jesus' church. Jesus knew that we would need them, all of them, if we were to grow up to be like him. Now, if you stopped reading at verse 11, you might think that only some people then have to do the work uh, of ministry for building up the, the church. Maybe you've been in that church. You know, it's the church where only the pastor is the one who does ministry. Only the pastor's prayers are the prayers that are effective. But actually, Paul tells us in verse 12 that people with these gifts have the purpose of equipping everyone in the church. Now, Paul isn't using the word saint in the same way that the Roman Catholic Church do. What Paul means is all those who have been set apart or made holy, not through a life of good works, but through the saving work of Jesus Christ. Not declared a saint by the Pope, but declared a saint by the living God. In other words, a Christian. If you're a Christian, you are a saint. Now, before you start celebrating, being a saint comes with responsibilities. There's work to be done, and it's the work of ministry, the work of serving each other. When Donnie and I lived in Muscat, in Oman, we were working with teenagers, and one teenager uh, did an internship with us uh, after he finished school. He wanted to go into full-time youth ministry, but it wasn't long into his internship that he discovered that his picture of ministry was quite different from reality. He had imagined sitting around during the week, thinking up fun games to do with the kids, and then those glorious moments on the weekend when teenagers would gather around him and think he's amazing. (laughs) He had no idea how much hard work it is. He had a picture of full-time ministry that was more naive and self-centered than it was about service. I wonder what your picture of ministry is. Do you look at the music team and think how glorious it would be when people come up to you and tell you how well you sang this morning? Or do you look at our pastoral staff and think how wonderful it would be to spend all your week meeting up with people for coffee? Because we all know that pastors only work one day a week, right? How... Naive and self-centered are those pictures of ministry when compared with what Paul calls us to in verse 12. The definition of ministry, according to Paul, is giving yourself sacrificially for the good of others. It's loving those in our church for their good so that together we grow up into Christ. It's building up the body of Christ, that is, other Christians, at any level. It's one-on-one. It's in your small group. It's serving, teaching, proclaiming, speaking, caring, leading. It's using whatever gift you have for someone else's benefit. 
That's ministry. Or the other word that we use here often is discipleship. How can I use what I have for your benefit, to encourage you and build you up? It's, kind of, it's similar to what we saw in Nehemiah 2, the, the passage that Jason read for us earlier. I have to confess, I was kind of chuckling, because uh, there, there are a few passages in the scripture that have as many difficult names. And I gave it to Jason. It was great. <clears throat> but you bring what you have, and you get to work building. Right? Don't wait for someone to tell you what to do. Look for opportunities to build into the lives of others. Spend time with them. Get to know them. Remind each other of God's word and encourage each other to do it. It's not complicated. It's not mysterious. It's just helping one another to follow Jesus. Are beginning to see God's plan for our spiritual growth? Jesus has given his Holy Spirit to gift some as apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers so that they can help equip everyone to serve each other in such a way that together we are mutually built up in Christ. Your spiritual growth and my spiritual growth are mutually dependent on one another and dependent on the Lord. Now, there are enemies to this plan, and they come in the form of two lies. These two lies, when we believe them, work against our spiritual growth. So the first one is this. We believe that we don't have anything good to offer anyone else. You might say, I'm a brand new Christian. I have nothing to give. My sin is too terrible compared with, with these other people. How can I be of any benefit to them? If you've ever thought these things or believed this about yourself, then listen to these words that are in verse 7. Grace was given to each one of us. Grace was given. Not just to the pastors, not just to the elders. Grace was given to each one of us. And how much? According to the measure of Christ's gift. Jesus doesn't have a redundancy plan. No spare wheels in his church. You have been given grace because you are important, both to Christ and also to our spiritual growth together. So let's reject the lie that says some people don't have anything to offer. If you are in Christ, you have been given grace. The second lie is this. We believe that we don't need anyone else to grow spiritually. We think, these people are just slowing me down. I, I, I want to be part of a church where there are more people like, well, more like me. And ever so subtly, or not, we look down on others because they aren't actually as spiritually mature as we think we are. Now, if you've ever thought that, then you've already forgotten the selfless love that Christ had for you. Verse 2 tells us that one of the signs of Christ-likeness is patience 
and bearing with one another in love. The degree to which you love others in our church is the degree to which we will grow spiritually together. God's wise plan for his church has no room for super-Christians who go it alone. We don't need another hero. We need humility and patience, both of which require relationships with other people to live out. But where are we headed? What does spiritual maturity look like? Well, that's our second point, the faith. Verse 13 and 14. Now right now, Liam still needs me to help him make good decisions. He needs me to tell him when it's time to go to bed, what food to eat and what clothes to wear. But there'll come a day when he'll be a man. He'll have to make those decisions for himself. In fact, those will be the easy things. There'll be important decisions about work and marriage and where to live. Decisions that have bigger and longer consequences. Unless Donnie and I have helped him to grow in maturity, it'll be hard for him to know how to make those decisions. Well, spiritual maturity is just the same. It's about making decisions. Decisions that will be based on what we believe about Jesus. So in verse 13, Paul says that we are to help one another grow up until we attain all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now that word faith has two parts to it. Faith means what we believe in and the act of believing it. You live what you believe. So if you say... You have faith in Jesus. What it means is that you believe certain things about Jesus and you act upon those beliefs. So if someone says they believe Jesus died for their sins, but their approach to good works and church attendance is to gain favor with God, then they don't really believe it. If someone says that they believe that Jesus conquered the power of sin, but they keep on sinning, and there's no change in how they treat others, then they don't really believe it. Spiritual maturity is not just about understanding with your head. It's about your actions and your attitudes that flow out from your understanding of the truth. So how do you feel about coming to church every week? What's your attitude? What do you do with your spare time? How do you spend your money? How do you respond when someone accuses you? Your decisions and actions in every aspect of your life will either show that you believe that Jesus died for your sin and has given you new life, or your actions will show that you don't. Because we live what we believe. But notice that Paul doesn't say that what we need is increased faith. He says we need unity of the faith. Now, this is not a, some fleeting sense of unity that you might get from a concert or a, or a conference. He's talking about a unity that is centered on something much bigger than an event. It's the unity of the faith. It's believing the same things about Jesus 
and all acting upon that belief. That's what unity of the faith is. Simple, right? If, if ever there was a contentious issue, it's the question of who is Jesus? I mean, all the major debates in Christianity in the first few centuries were about who Jesus is. That's why we have the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed. Because there wasn't unity amongst everyone about who Jesus is. But the same is true today. Much of our society is shaped now by postmodern thinking. Truth is seen as relative. And the greatest sin is to say that there's only one truth. But Paul, you might say, I don't think you understand the complexities of our postmodern world. See, we think, we think truth is relative now. And, and honestly, I prefer a Jesus that's, well, a little more evolved. For instance, my Jesus would never send someone to hell for ignoring him. He's always seeing the good in me. And he never judges me or calls me to change. My Jesus is someone I can truly aspire to. My Jesus is, well, more achievable. Oh, friends, be wary that your picture of Jesus is nothing more than a projection of yourself. Perhaps you've been coming along to Redeemer and you find the people friendly and nice, but really, isn't this Jesus person just like all other inspirational figures? Just a good role model? Maybe a projection of what we'd like to see in ourselves? Well, that's not the picture that Paul's painting for us here in verse 13. It says that Jesus is the Son of God. And he's the measuring stick by which we are to compare everything. That means there's no one greater than him. I mean, take a quick look with me up at verse 9. Verse 9 says, In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. That's the measuring stick. Far above all the heavens. He's the one who fills all things. That means he's nothing short of perfect. And that's what we are being called towards. That's what mature manhood looks like. The Jesus who fills all things and is far above the heavens is not okay with you ignoring him or just considering him as a good role model. He's not okay with good morals and a friendly smile. And nor is he okay with our best efforts. Jesus demands perfection. Now, I think that you and I would both agree that we are far from perfect. But I wonder if you realize just how far. You see, the very nature of sin is that it deceives us. Psalm 36 describes its effects like this. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes and his iniquity cannot be found and hated. 
That's a far cry from the I'm okay, you're okay approach that we have to life. Our sin is so great and its effects are so far-reaching that the idea of perfection is so unattainable that it's been relegated to the realm of philosophical thinking. And that's where it would remain. If it were not for the fact that one man actually was perfect in every way. One man whose life is not just the inspiration for a self-help book, but a life that was sacrificed for the sake of others. Jesus' perfect life only makes sense because of his death and his resurrection. His whole purpose in coming was because there was no way that we could attain to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. There was no way that we could in any way grow up into maturity because sin holds us captive and even blinds us to how immature we really are. Jesus, the perfect man, died in the place of imperfect people like you and I so that what was impossible for us has now been made possible in him. The perfection that he calls us to is not and will never be attainable on our own. It's only as we put our faith in him and and are united with him through faith that we can begin to move towards maturity in Christ. Let me urge you, give up your attempts to change that rely on self-will. Repent of your self-reliance and put your faith in Jesus. He's the only one who can take away your sin and bring any real and lasting change in your life and in ours. Believe that he has conquered the power of sin and start acting upon that belief. You know, repentance and belief must happen at at an individual level. But we also need one another if we are to grow towards the unity of the faith. Attaining to the unity of the faith is about helping one another believe, to believe true things about Jesus and to act upon that truth. So what we believe about Jesus then is really important because we live what we believe. So there are consequences if we don't believe true things about Jesus. Have a look then at verse 14. Verse 14, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. If we don't believe true things about Jesus, the consequences can be devastating. And we need others as well in that process to help us evaluate the stream of ideas that flow through our internet connections. Without that bearing of one another and God's word as we evaluate and read it together, our lives will be less like the strong house that's built on a rock and more like the house that gets washed away in the storm. Attaining to the unity of the faith is helping one another to believe true things about Jesus and to act upon that truth. So Paul's picture of God's plan for our spiritual growth 
is that Jesus has given gifts to his people through the Holy Spirit so that the saints are equipped to serve each other as we are increasingly unified in what we believe about Jesus and help one another to act upon that belief in our lives. And the degree to which you love others in our church in this way is the degree to which we will grow spiritually together. But what does this really look like? I mean, how does this practically work out? How do we go about this task of ministry? Well, that's our third and final point, the truth. Verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. I was meditating on this verse earlier this week and I came to a profound conclusion. What Paul means when he says to speak the truth in love is that we are to speak the truth. That is, don't lie. He says the same thing down in verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. I mean, just think with me for a minute. How often do we actually not really tell the truth? You know, someone asks you, how are you? The answer is always. Yeah, I'm good, thanks. Mabutipo. Yeah. But that's just the tip of the iceberg. How often do we also then just exaggerate things or leave things unsaid so that people will look at us and think better things of us? When confronted with our mistakes, we might lie or, or justify our actions. We even use Christian phrases to make ourselves look spiritual. Like, I'll see you at church on Friday, Lord willing. But speaking the truth to one another is not just about what we say, it's also about what we don't say. Not telling someone if you're hurt or offended by them is also not speaking the truth. Each time you withhold yourself from someone else at church, either by putting up a smokescreen of fake holiness or retreating inside your shell, you're robbing yourself and that person of an opportunity to move one step closer towards maturity in Christ together. It's like you're saying, I don't want to grow up. I just want to stay six. Now, yes, it may be difficult, but the degree to which you engage in meaningful relationships in our church is the degree to which we will grow spiritually together. That's why we keep inviting you to become a member at Redeemer. Membership is a, a powerful way of demonstrating your commitment to the other members of our church. When you become a member, you're saying, I recognize that I have an important role in the spiritual growth of others and that I need others as well. That's God's plan for us. So we have a membership class coming up on September the 11th. There's information about it in your bulletin. But if you're not a member, please come along. Find out more about our church and how you can be more actively engaged in our corporate spiritual growth. 
But there's also a sense in which Paul is using the word truth to mean the unchangeable truth of God's word. Speaking the truth to one another starts with speaking the truth to yourself. So the only way that I can be honest with you about my sin is if I believe that Jesus has dealt with my sin on the cross already. And I tell myself that truth and I believe it. The only way that I'm able to invest my time and energy for the good of someone else without any expectation of gain is because I'm convinced of the truth that I have already been loved with the unfailing and steadfast love of Jesus. That's what real love is. It's loving without any expectation of personal gain. Romans 5 verse 8 says that God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the kind of love that is to mark our truth speaking to one another. We don't wait for them to, to love us first before we initiate caring for them. Now Paul Tripp in his book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, gives us four words that summarizes what Paul's saying here in Ephesians 4. Now these are so helpful that I wanted to, to give them to you as well this morning. And these words are love, know, speak, do. You may want to write it down to help you remember. Love, know, speak, and do. So first, we approach people with love. That means you accept them as they are. Love them as they are. Sure, I mean, Jesus hasn't finished with them yet. But love recognizes that we're all in need of change. Love is easy until the person that you are called to love has a character trait that really gets on your nerves. Just quietly between you and me, the sin that irritates you most in others is usually the sin that we are particularly prone to ourselves. The sin that most irritates you in others is the sin that we are most likely prone to in ourselves. So love with grace. We're all in need of change. Love people as they are, where they're at right now. But then you get to know them. It's the second one. Know. Knowing someone is actually knowing who they really are. You know, what do they desire? What do they struggle with? What has their life been like so far? And how are they responding to their present situation? Don't assume that because you've been in the same church as someone for five years, that you know what their present hopes and dreams are. Get to know them. You know, perpetually casual relationships and assumptions about one another are enemies of our spiritual growth together. So ask questions that go beyond the normal kind of, how's work? Yeah, it's all good. You know, ask what they've been reading in the Bible lately. Ask what you could be praying for them right now. But when you ask, be ready to listen. 
You don't have to know everyone, but make sure there's at least some people at Redeemer that you know beyond the level of an eyebrow greeting. You know, as you really get to know each other, we're then better able to speak God's word to one another. So we've got love, know, and now speak. Now, when we speak God's word, we don't do it in a way that condemns someone. Because you know, as you get to know one another, you're going to get to know each other's sin pretty quickly. Right? We speak God's word in love. We want to help each other attain to the unity of the faith, to understand what God's word says to us. Now, I want to let, just want to warn you, be careful with the sword of the spirit. Don't go swinging that thing around without any control. All right? Be gentle in the way that you bring God's word to each other. There is a good chance that your brother or sister in Christ already knows what God's word says about their situation. But they might be having trouble believing it. Or at the same time, don't be timid in the way that you bring God's word to someone. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that the word of God is essential in the process of our spiritual growth. So don't fail to talk about God's word with each other. Love, know, speak, and lastly, do. We need to actually do what God's word says to do. Now, we know that we won't always do it perfectly, but we encourage one another to live what we believe. Encouragement is an important part of our spiritual growth together. So if you've noticed someone serving well, or you've noticed someone who recently made a, a difficult but a wise decision, a godly decision, then don't fail to encourage them for it. Give them just a few words of encouragement. It may seem strange at first, but those few words can have a big impact, especially if that person feels unappreciated or unnoticed. Remember, we live what we believe. So encourage one another specifically to believe in the gospel by acting upon its truth. So love, know, speak, and do. I think those are just helpful things to keep in the backs of our minds as we engage in the work of ministry, in building one another up. You know, behind Liam's plea to stay six is the desire to avoid responsibility. He didn't want to have to do the same kinds of chores that his older siblings did. And I get it. I mean, wouldn't it just be easier to stay six? I mean, why grow up at all? Why is Paul calling us to grow up into Christ? Because growing up is not just about what's good for us. Growing up is about what brings glory to Christ. The more that we look like Jesus, the more clearly others will see Jesus in us. That's why Jesus tells us in John 13, 35, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So let's set our sights on the goal. Don't be content with staying six. Let's consider how we can spur one another on to love and good deeds. Jesus has set us on a course 
for spiritual growth. And he has promised to bring it to completion. There's something important that Liam didn't realize when he was five. He couldn't imagine himself being older than six. He thought that six would be old enough. But now he's already talking about being seven. Right now, it's hard for us to imagine a spiritual maturity that is the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We're so familiar with our sin that we can't imagine not sinning. You might even look around at the others in this room and think, well, I'm not sure if we're going to make it. But Jesus knows where he wants to take us. And he's promised to get us there. He knows exactly what it will take and he's already given us everything that we need in his word and in his Holy Spirit. Step by step, little by little, as each part is working properly, as we speak the truth in love to one another, Redeemer Church of Dubai will grow to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Let's pray. Father, what a privilege that you would call us to be your people. And what a privilege to bear your name in this world. Lord, what a gloriously wise plan that you've given us in Ephesians 4 for how we are to do that. Father, we want to praise you for the ways that we are already seeing this passage being lived out in our church. Lord, we praise you for the men and women who serve behind the scenes, getting here early on Friday mornings to set up, for those who deliver meals to the sick, and the countless ways that we have been caring for one another. Father, we praise you as well for those that have moved away from Redeemer, testifying that their time among us has been a significant time of spiritual growth for them. Lord, all of these things are evidence of your Spirit's work among us. But we also recognize, Lord, that that we're not there yet. We have not attained to the unity of the faith. We are not perfect. So, Father, would you encourage those who consider themselves worthless in our church, remind them of your grace to them. Pour out your love upon them that they might love others freely. Lord, would you help each one of us to walk in humility and gentleness, recognizing that we are members one of another. Lord, where there is division, where there is broken relationships and tension, would you help us to forgive one another just as God in Christ forgave us? Lord, in all of these things, let us be dependent on your Spirit who gives life and power to walk in ways that please you. Lord, we pray these things for our good and that the glory of Jesus might be seen more clearly in us. Amen.